Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And welcome to part two of our uh two-part episode on Antoni Gaudi. Uh, as we left off in part one, Gaudi had graduated from architecture school and he had started his own firm and he had just had a really successful showing of projects at the Paris World's Fair in 1878. And now we're going to jump right into where his career kind of starts to really take off from that point. Gaudi was given numerous opportunities to work on all kinds of projects immediately following the World's Fair. He also took on an added responsibility. He became the guardian of his niece, Rosa, after his sister died. Rosa was sent to the Jesus Maria convent in Tarragona. Yeah, so at that point, that was pretty much all that was left of the family. I had mentioned in uh, the previous episode that even though he had four siblings, uh, they all passed away quite young. And so at this and his mother had also died. So at this point, it was just him, his father and then his niece left. And. In late 1879, Gaudi joined the Catalan Association of Scientific Excursions, and this served as sort of a social and cultural network, and it arranged tours of sites of Catalan historical significance. And this group was still quite a young organization. It was formed in 1876 as part of a movement to revive the culture of Catalonia. I feel like we could do a whole other podcast on Catalan nationalism and the history of Catalonia, and we may at some point, but there are some pretty complex elements to discuss there, and even events that reach into very recent history, like as recently as last year, there was some pretty interesting discussion going on there. Uh, so because Gaudi's sort of life story is a very rich one, we're going to go a little glossy here and not talk a whole lot about the politics Um that he was to some degree involved in. We mentioned in the previous episode that he was definitely still really tied to his Catalan roots and his his hometown and sort of the working class. And that carries through. Uh, But know that, you know, I want to acknowledge that there was this political stuff going on, uh, but that we're not going to dig super deep into it just for the, because it's beyond the scope of, what's already a two-part podcast on one man. So that's the scoop on that. Uh, We're kind of glossing over a lot of stuff quickly here. In 1880, the architect was asked to serve as keeper of the group's archaeological museum, and he accepted. He was very proud of his Catalan upbringing, and from that point, he frequently went on excursions with the association. Yeah, if you look at like a timeline of his life, it's like there's this constant, and then they went here, and then they went here. It's sort of uh, populates, you know, throughout any uh, historical account of what he was doing. He was always involved with them going forward. In 1881, Antoni Gaudi became a member of the Association of Architects of Catalonia, and he was sponsored in his entry into that organization by architect Camille Oliveres y Gensana. During this time, he also started collaborating with another architect, Juan Martorell. And he was 19 years older than Gaudi, who was already established at this point in his career. He took on the role of mentor to the younger architect, who served as sort of a trusted assistant. And eventually, Gaudi's association with Martorelli uh, would lead to the project that is perhaps the most famous, and that is the Sagrada Familia, or Basilica and Expiatory Church of the Holy Family. 
This was an incredibly high-profile project. It is a huge Roman Catholic church that had already begun construction in 1882 under the leadership of Francisco de Paula del Villar, who we mentioned in the previous episode. He had been one of Gaudi's professors in school. After a disagreement with the council responsible for the construction, and more specifically, uh, Martorey, who was a council member, del Villar resigned from the project. He left it completely unhelmed. And initially, the job of taking it back over was offered to Martorea, but he declined, and he suggested that Gaudi take it instead. And so Gaudi became the lead on the project in November of 1883, although his role wasn't actually made official for several months. I think it was March of 1884 when he's legally and completely like associated his leadership over the project. And he would continue working on this church for the rest of his life. And as he worked on it, it seemed his religious devotion continued to deepen. Uh, he became progressively more religious the longer he worked on this one specific piece. Uh, so much so that in 1894, so at that point he had been working on it for more than a decade, he went on a fast for Lent that was so severe he nearly died. Uh, had a trusted priest not eventually kind of intervene and convinced him to break this fast for his own good and the good of all of his projects, he likely would not have survived. Another major event in Gaudi's life also happened in the early half of the 1880s. We don't really know a lot about any romantic involvements on Gaudi's part, but he did propose to a teacher at the Cooperativa Materonense. Her name was Pepeta Moreau, and this was in 1884. He didn't get the answer that he had hoped for, though. She was already engaged, and so she rejected Gaudi. She wound up uh, getting married to her intended several years later, and Gaudi never got married. Yeah, uh, most accounts say that at that point he pretty much gave up on on romance of any kind. Uh, it, it's really unusual in that when you look at historical figures where there's not a lot of story about their romantic involvement there's often lots of like but really everyone thinks that they were kind of into this person or that or they had a secret flame there's like nothing it like there's no account there are like a couple of people he may have met with but it's really a uh, pretty uh solo life from that point on and we're going to talk about his work on Sagrada Familia but also a lot of the other projects that he had going on simultaneously in just a minute. But first, would you like to do a quick word from a sponsor? Sure thing. So uh, while the Sagrada Familia was a huge opportunity and a massive project, it was not the only item that was on Gaudi's architectural plate in the 1880s. He was also commissioned to work on several houses for prominent people of Barcelona. And he was so busy that he began to delegate management of some of his projects to one of his former university classmates. From 1883 on, Gaudi stayed incredibly busy. In March of 1885, the first of his contributions to the Sagrada Familia was dedicated. This was the Chapel of St. Joseph. And one of the other really big projects that he worked on, which was at the turn of the century, was the Parc Guel. And this was commissioned by his friend Eusebi Guel. This particular project was an environmentally aware garden city development. And it consisted of a plan for five dozen homes intended as luxury living spaces for upper upper middle class dwellers, as well as loads of green space. It really is a park uh, and community areas and a chapel. 
Once the park's model home was completed, there weren't any interested buyers. So Gaudi purchased the home himself, and he moved in with his father and his niece, which at that point were his only remaining family. The kind of weird irony is that this house was not even designed by Gaudi. He designed a lot of Park Well, but his colleague, Francesc Berenguer, was the person who actually designed that particular house. Including Gaudi's, only three families ever lived at Park Guel. Eusebi Guel and lawyer Marty Tirius E. Dominic also lived in homes in the park grounds for a brief time. Yeah, there were two uh, homes that were built as part of this project and then a previously existing house there. And uh, the previously existing house is the one where Guel moved into and this lawyer had taken the other model home. So that, those are the only people... Uh, and just a few months after they moved into this new home, Gaudi's father actually died. And from then until 1911, it seemed like Gaudi just continued his work with a constant stream of projects. Like work pretty much became his entire life. Things changed in 1911 when he contracted Maltese fever, also called Malta fever, or more accurately, brucellosis. Uh, this is a contagious bacterial infection that's contracted by direct skin contact with sick cattle or sheep or goats, pigs or dogs, or consuming contaminated milk or meat from these animals. Yeah, I never found anything conclusive about how he actually contracted it. We know that he was not a meat eater, so I'm not sure if he, uh, what his, his restrictions in his vegetarianism were, if he drank milk or if he just had contact with an animal, or if anybody really knows kind of how he became ill. But uh, brucellosis symptoms include fever, you get sweats, headaches, muscle and joint pain. And if you experience a prolonged bout of it, it causes depression and chronic fatigue. And so when Gaudi became ill in 1911, he had a persistent case, and he was convinced he was going to die. And remember, he had rheumatism from a young age, so he already had sort of a base level of joint pain. So it's entirely likely that his body aches at this point were excruciating. So even though the the death rate from brucellosis is actually quite low, uh, I can see where someone in that deep level of pain thinks they're coming to the end. Uh, and at that point, he made out his will. He did, however, eventually recover from this illness. In the years immediately after his illness, Gaudi's life was really plagued by tragedy. In 1912, his niece Rosa, who at that point was his last remaining family, died. In 1914, one of his favorite collaborators and friends, Francesc Berenguer, who we spoke about earlier, also died. Berenguer's death was a huge blow. Gaudi said to his widow, You have lost your husband, but I have lost my right hand. Also in 1914, he found himself in a bit of a legal battle. Uh, He had to sue Per Mila, and this is a client for whom he had built one of his other famous pieces, Casa Mila, in order to wrest payment from him. And the court did find in favor of Gaudi. And once he had received the settlement, he actually donated all the money to the Jesuit community. So it seems as though he didn't really need it. He just wanted things to be done. Like he just wanted the agreement to be uh, upheld. And in 1916, the Archbishop of Vic, with whom he was very close friends, died. And then two years later, his patron and closest friend, Giuseppe Guell, also passed away. Beginning in 1914, Gaudi dedicated the remainder of his days to working on the Sagrada Familia. And as he aged and he 
dealt with his grief from all of these losses, he really focused entirely on his work on the church. Uh, he kind of dabbled in some potential other projects, but they never came to fruition. And he really was all about finishing this church. Uh, and he also kind of stopped being that dandy that he had been, you know, when he first started out in his career. He seemed to lose all interest in his appearance. And by the time he moved into a studio that he had set up at the Sagrada Familia in 1925 so that he could basically be there around the clock and be working at all hours, he was almost indiscernible from a vagabond. And unfortunately, his shabby appearance would prove to be disastrous. On June 7th, 1926, Gaudi told one of the construction workers at the end of the workday, come bright and early tomorrow because we're going to do some beautiful things. And he went out for his usual evening walk. He was struck by the city's number 30 tram while he was at an intersection. Because of his appearance being so unkempt, nobody recognized him as the celebrated architect of Barcelona, and so no one stopped to help what they thought was a homeless man. Yeah, I saw one uh, brief blur, but I couldn't find substantiation on it, that eventually um, the municipal police actually fined several taxi drivers for not having assisted a person that was clearly in distress. Uh, he was eventually taken to a hospital. He was basically taken to a pauper's hospital. But at that point, he was still believed to be a vagabond, and he was given subpar medical treatment. And unfortunately, by the time he was recognized by friends who had been trying to find him, it was too late for better better medical care to offer any real help. And so three days after his accident, he died on June 10th of 1926. Barcelona mourned him en masse. And after the funeral on June 12th, his body was buried in a crypt at the unfinished Sagrada Familia. The magnificent structure was less than half completed, despite the decades of work that Gaudi had poured into it. He'd known for a really long time that he would not live to complete the project, but he really wanted to have as much of it as possible done in his lifetime. Yeah, I actually read uh, that it was like in the teens of percentage of completion when he died. So there was really a very long way to go. Uh, and next, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of Gaudi's most important projects. But before we do... Uh, do you want to pause for a sponsor break? Let's do that. All right. So uh, back to talking about Gaudi's work. Uh, I honestly feel like even though we have talked and talked and talked about Gaudi's life, we still left an awful lot out. Uh, he did a lot of things. He worked on so many projects. And I was actually bemoaning this to a friend of mine via text as I was writing up these notes. I was like, I, we, there's no way we can include everything and not make this like a 10 hour thing. That's just a list of things he worked on. And she was like, well, like, what would happen if somebody tried to do your life and talk about, like, everything you've ever sewed? And I was like, okay, fair enough. But uh, we have to now kind of devote some time to talking about his work in greater detail. So seven of his projects are on the UNESCO World Heritage List. That is the most astonishing part of this whole thing to me. Like, right? The things, seven! The things that are on the UNESCO World Heritage List are just so monumental and so critically important to the culture of the area that they're in, seven of them. So the uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites are Park Guel, Palacio Guel, Casa Mila, Casa Vicens, Casa Batio, the crypt in Colonia Guel, and his work on the nativity facade and the crypt of La Sagrada Familia. So you really can't notice or can't help but notice and a lot of these contain the name of his friend and benefactor, Guel. 
So, yeah, we're going to talk about a few of them. We're not, like I said, we can't go on for hours and hours. So we will not go into detail on every one of these UNESCO World Heritage Sites. But we're going to start a bit uh, talking about Park Güell. And it's the project on the list we probably spoke the most about uh, leading in the course of his sort of life story. And that was because we were trying to set up kind of the lead up to mentioning his father's death after they had moved into the park. And this property uh, became city property in 1923 after it had clearly failed as a neighborhood development. And it is now a public park. And if you look at any travel brochure for Barcelona, Park Güell is included as a must-see. There's a really beautiful playfulness to the design and the way that it uses the naturally occurring shapes of the landscape to create other structures and sort of visual shapes. If you've ever seen that, uh, there's a, a photo of this mosaic tile salamander in Barcelona that's sort of famous. Uh, that is part of Park Güell. And the house that Gaudi lived in at Park Güell, designed by his friend and colleague, Francesc Berenguer, is now uh, the Gaudi House Museum. And you can actually do a virtual online visit of the museum, including the gardens. It is really quite well done, and we will put a link to that in the show notes. Casa Vicens was Gaudi's first independent design, so it was his first time working without a collaborator. This residence broke ground in 1883, and it was completed in 1888, although it was expanded in the 20s by Sarah Martinez, who consulted with Gaudi. The combination of brickwork, Valencia tile, and wrought iron is really executed with just incredible precision. What could completely look like a big mess is a harmonious design. There's an incredible checkerboard detailing on the exterior that makes it both visually engaging and instantly recognizable as a building. Yeah, I have never seen it in person, but looking at photos of it, it made me think about, like, we have all seen that one house in any given neighborhood where the people tend to keep adding weird stuff on. This had the potential to be that. I mean, it's got so many seemingly disparate elements but they all are just so beautifully orchestrated together that it doesn't look like, whoa, that's a crazy house. It's very striking, and it may not be a style that's for everyone, but it doesn't look like a crazy mess. It really is clearly designed. Uh, Casa Batio is probably one of two of Gaudi's projects that almost every single person has at least seen a photograph of. Uh, this is a design that when people see it, that don't sort of know the background on it. it. They often comment that it looks a little bit like something that H.R. Giger would have created. The facade has this combination of mosaic tiling and stonework that begins to resemble skeletal bones. And I think its nickname uh, there is actually House of Bones. And the interior carries that exact same vibe. It's really spectacular. It feels both organic and completely and carefully designed. Casa Batio represents a real shift in Gaudi's work. He divorced conventional design in a lot of ways in the early 1900s and really developed this equilibrated structural style. This design approach focuses on building structures that are self-supporting. They require neither internal bracing nor external buttressing. And Casa Mina, also known as La Padrera, which is the stone quarry, is also emblematic of this style. And that's also the one that he had the legal battle over being paid for. 
And when Casamilo was first unveiled, it was kind of skewered in the press. There was some support for it, but there was a lot of uh, mockery of it. There were cartoonists that drew it with a lot of insulting variations as like a dirigible parking garage. They drew it with cannons poking out of every window as like a cave that was full of animals. One did it as an Easter cake. Uh, and it was, you know, it was controversial. As I said, it was the last private commission that Gaudi ever received from anyone other than his friend Guel. And eventually a bank purchased Casamila in 1986 and restored it. Uh, and they took great pains to restore it to its original design scheme. And it is now a museum that you can go visit. The big legacy, which is the Church of Sagrada Familia, is based on a Latin cross. As we mentioned when discussing how Gaudi came to work on this particular project, it was originally started under the direction of architect Francesc de Paula de Villar. And he had uh, designed the project in a Gothic revival style. When Gaudi took over in 1883, he made really significant changes to the plan. His progress on this amazing work of art really happened in stages. The crypt was built over the years of 1884 to 1889. The nativity facade was completed in 1905. The four bell towers were built and completed between 1925 and 1930. The transept elevation of the Passion didn't start until 1960, so 36 years after Gaudi's death. This church is actually still not finished. Uh, yeah, after Gaudi died, work on Sagrada Familia sputtered. It was derailed by financial issues in the Spanish Civil War. And we mentioned uh, when we talked about his devotion to it kind of towards the end of his life and how little of it had actually been completed, that he knew it wasn't going to get finished while he was still alive. But he was just trying to lay the, the design groundwork and make sure that all of the plans were in place, that it could continue. But that was a problem. Uh, there was some noise made about a revival effort uh, in terms of construction to coincide with the 100th anniversary of Gaudi's birth, but nothing really came to fruition. That date came and went. As it stands now, the church is expected to be completed in 2026, marking 100 years since Gaudi's untimely death. When the church is finished, it will have 18 towers, 12 dedicated to the apostles, four to the evangelists, one to Jesus and another to Mary. Yeah, so the exciting thing is we will hopefully get to see it completed in our lifetimes, uh, provided nothing bad happens. But it it's so beautiful, even as it stands unfinished. It's one of those things where you'll see pictures of it and it looks really amazing, but there are always cranes everywhere around it. So <laughs> uh, uh, hopefully we'll get to see it in its full glory because it is really, really beautiful. And if you would like to uh, look at it, you can actually do a virtual tour of Sagrada Familia online as well. And that includes a really detailed, you can really like zoom right in on it, uh, of Gaudi's tomb. And uh, we will link again to that one in the show notes as well. In 1933, the Freyus Museum was established, and a space was reserved for Gaudi as one of the most important artists of his hometown. Uh, the year 2002 was deemed the Year of Gaudi in Barcelona, and that was to honor his 150th birthday. Celebration events included sort of a surge of construction on the Sagrada Familia, as well as the Parc Güell, because there were still some elements of it that were not completed, and an educational campaign around his life and work. In 2003, a campaign started to have Gaudi named as a saint by the Vatican. The Archbishop of Barcelona at the time gathered an assortment of documentation to try to make the case. The primary example offered to show the architect's worthiness of the honor 
is his beautiful and inspiring design of the Sagrada Familia. Advocates feel like his work is beautiful enough to convert unbelievers, and testimonials given by Catholics converted by their exposure to Gaudi's architecture were given in Rome in early 2003. The Gaudi Beatification Society, which is a movement that numbered more than 80,000 members 10 years ago, I didn't see any updated numbers for them, already believe in Gaudi's divinity, and they actually pray to him as an instrument of God, as one would to any other saint, uh, if you are so inclined. The members of this society feel that the magnificence of the Sagrada Familia is evidence enough that divine inspiration was at play in Gaudi's work. That could not just be a matter of a human designing something. There had to be some divine element to it. And as of 2014, the group... Uh, and other interested parties were still campaigning for sainthood for Gaudi. So if it is granted, it's still on the table, I believe, he will be the first architect to be canonized. As far as how the man himself talked about the inspiration for his work, he said, nothing is invented, for it's written in nature first. We've talked about him for two episodes. I still feel like we kind of scratched the surface. Well, and I know it's always difficult. Anytime we have a, a subject that has a lot of visual elements, whether it's an artist or a, like a, a choreographer or whatever, where there's a lot to look at. Uh, yeah. Like I, I never want to just skip all the episodes that are like that because that's a lot of the world, but we know it's challenging, which is why we'll be talking about our Pinterest a lot. We'll have lots of links and show notes to where you can actually look at this stuff um, and see what we look at and why it's amazing. Yeah, I was actually looking at reviews for a biography about him while I was doing research. And one of the things that people kept saying was like, they don't describe enough of his work. They're just talking about what he did and like the politics. And I want to hear about what the buildings are like. And I'm like, this is a really hard thing to balance. Like, I, I certainly want to meet expectations, but I, and part of it too is his work is so mind blowing. Mm-hmm. I, I run out of the, uh, appropriate adjectives that can adequately convey it's like we should uh we should distribute this podcast with like a coffee table book <laughs> to go with it <laughs> yes and it, it's one of those things and look up anybody like there were several travel journalists that i looked at their accounts of like the first time that they saw a gaudy building in person or they stood in a gaudy building and they're all just like i was a gog I don't know what to say about it. It was mind-blowing. So, so like we said, Pinterest going to be really busy. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. And I uh, I almost feel bad because I'm reading another one about the eggnog riot. But uh, we had some really interesting ones and ones that were not covering the same information. So I'm going ahead. This one is from our listener, Kirsten. And she writes, hi, Tracy and Holly. I'm catching up on your Christmas podcast episodes, and I just finished listening to your eggnog riot episode. You both marveled at the amount of alcohol in eggnog, and it is indeed the case that eggnog can be very boozy. One reason is that eggnog was often made well in advance of the Christmas season and then was stored and aged until the holidays. So the alcohol works to kill any potential bacterial nasties which may develop in the eggs, and leaving it to age also dramatically improves the flavor and lets the alcohol blend better with the other ingredients. Uh, She links us to a recipe that she used. Uh, She says, I am not organized or patient enough to age eggnog for three years, but I usually try to give mine a good six months of aging before drinking. So I make it in June or July for Christmas. I can confirm that the nog does indeed stay bacteria free, even if not kept in the fridge. And it is a delicious way to enjoy Christmas. 
she and her husband listen to the podcast on the way to work. So I kind of love that, that that's something they share. So thank you, Kirsten. That didn't even occur to me, but it makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense. And uh, what's uh, kind of weirdly ironic, maybe not exactly ironic, was I think after we recorded this, but before it came out, there was an episode of Judge John Hodgman that was all kinds of holiday related stuff. And it included this whole thing about eggnog and how uh, John Hodgman believes store-bought eggnog to be disgusting. And he got into this whole thing about uh, Alton Brown having a recipe for eggnog that uses lots of alcohol, with part of the reason being the alcohol killing the bacteria. And I was like, I never really thought of that before. Does that really work? If Alton Brown says so, then it must then be it true. it must be true. Because that's <laughs> his whole deal. Like, with, my brother got salmonella as a child, which he did not get from raw eggs. But that is a place that you can get salmonella. And from that yeah. point on... My mom was so hyper vigilant about raw eggs uh, that, like, I still, when I am looking at the store-bought eggnog that John Hodgman finds to be disgusting, um, I'm always making sure it's pasteurized. So <laughs> I'm glad to know there are alternate methods of making safe eggnog. That I think your mom might have been terrified of my house growing up. That's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah. I had a grandmother who was, uh, you know, when we visited her, she was French background, uh, very open to tartars uh-huh. and raw things. And, and, you know, they, both of my parents grew up on farms, so they were very used to like get the egg from the chicken and make a thing with it. And it wasn't a big, right. Thing. <laughs> uh, which is probably why I have an almost cast iron stomach. <laughs> Need to polish it with something only slightly dangerous once in a while. Uh, if you would like to write to us with your favorite eggnog recipe or dangerous foods you should not have eaten as a child or anything else you'd like to talk about, uh, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at History at Facebook.com slash History at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And as we keep mentioning on Pinterest.com slash History, where it's going to be a gouty festival for a little while. Uh, you can also buy Missed in History goodies at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com, and we encourage you to do so. If you would like to do a little bit of research uh, related to what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. If you type in the words construction projects in the search bar, you will get an article called 10 Construction Projects That Broke the Bank. Guess what? Sagrada Familia is on that list. Uh, since it had so many struggles as it went on. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com, where we have all of our archived episodes we have show notes we have the occasional blog post and we're there hanging out so come and visit you can do that at mistinhistory.com or visit our parent site howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 